I told you last week that today's message has the potential to be controversial, which means some of you are really looking forward to today's message, and some of you are dreading it. It depends on how you handle controversy. But all of you are probably wondering what in the world I was talking about, and, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But first, I want to do just a little bit of a review for those who may be joining us for the first time. Since Easter, we've been in a series called Irresistible. It's about reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed on the world. What was it about the first century church that made it so irresistible? What was it that fueled its exponential growth and its influence throughout the world and throughout history? Well, a big part of the answer to that question is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection changed everything for the early disciples, and it formed the early witness of the church. It was the primary testimony of the early church. If you read the book of Acts, all the sermons reference the resurrection of Jesus. If you read through the New Testament letters, they all talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But they also talk about this new that Jesus unleashed on the world. They talk about the new covenant and the new commandment and the new movement of Jesus. So last week we talked about covenants. And we talked about how the new covenant established by Jesus, Luke chapter 22, it was established by Jesus at his death, burial, and resurrection. And this new covenant replaced what we know as the old covenant. The old covenant was the Sinai covenant. And it's just called that because it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. It was a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. Now, there are a couple of important distinctions between the old and the new covenant. First, the old covenant was conditional. It was based upon Israel's ability to obey. So blessings and curses flowed based upon the nation's obedience or lack of obedience. Second, it was specific. It was between God and the nation of Israel only. And then third, it was temporary. The old covenant would eventually be fulfilled and replaced by the new covenant. And we ended our message last week with a reading from Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 6 and 13 are of particular importance. Verse 6 says, In fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, referencing their old covenant, is superior to their covenant, of which he is the mediator, is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And then verse 13, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay, but so what? <laughs> I mean, what's the big deal about all this? I mean, what's controversial about old and new covenants? And why in the world are we getting into the weeds on a theological issue like covenants? Well, here's the deal. If you grew up in a conservative, Bible-believing church, then at some point you probably received a book that looks like this. Maybe not as thick as this one. This is my study Bible. But you received a book at some point that contained in one bound volume all 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And you were told that all of these books are authoritative because all of these books are the inspired Word of God. And that's true. But what you may not have been told, or it may not have explained very well, is that these different books are organized based upon different covenants. And he may not have been explained to you why the old was called old, and why the new was called new, and why that matters. Here's why it matters. If we don't understand what makes up the old covenant and what makes up the new covenant, then we end up with a confusing and complicated version of our faith that tries to blend rules from both covenants. Basically, what we end up with is a Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank. 
And the problem with that is that many of the people who've left the Christian faith, including our own children, or including people that we grew up in church with, our friends and family, many of those who left the Christian faith didn't leave because of Jesus. They left because of what we filled in the blank with. And so a lot of that came from the Old Covenant or from distortions of the Old Covenant. So much so that a blended approach has become a barrier of faith to a lot of people. And it's been going on for a long time. Last week, we talked about the earliest example of that, the Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians who believed that in order for you to be a Christian, in order for you to be accepted as a Christian, you had to obey both Jesus and the law of Moses. What they were teaching is that Jesus plus circumcision is what saves you. And I think you can see how that could be a significant barrier to faith for the Gentiles, right? A couple of other examples from the early church included the eating of meat sacrificed to idols or the observance of special days, both Old Covenant hangovers. But the modern church has plenty of examples as well. For instance, why do some churches have priests? And why do you have to confess your sins to a priest in order to be absolved of your sin? Why do some churches observe the Sabbath? And why were there laws in America as late as the 20th century concerning what can and can't be done on the Sabbath? Why do some churches, churches preach a prosperity gospel that blessings and cursings will flow to you based on accordance to your faithfulness or lack of faithfulness? Why do some teach that unless you give a tithe, you are breaking, violating the clear commands of God? Why do some people warn of God's specific judgment on the nation of America and use prophecies intended for ancient Israel as their proof text? Why do we use Old Testament proof texts at all to talk about what may be prohibited or permitted in the New Testament church? A lot of people's bad experiences with church and a lot of bad theology, confusion over the teachings of the Bible has come from this pick-and-choose approach. A.J. Jacobs parodied the whole thing in a book called A Year of Living Biblically. What he did was he made a list of every rule in the Bible. He just went from Genesis through Revelation, came up with every rule, every command, and then he spent a year trying to equally apply every rule and literally apply it regardless of whether or not it came from Leviticus or Ephesians. Now, it's a pretty funny book, but it's a terrible way to interpret the Bible. But that's the way a lot of people try to interpret the Bible. A lot of people believe that's how the Bible works. It's all God's Word, so therefore it must all be equally binding. And a lot of people have left the faith, either because they couldn't make sense of that, and it all got kind of confusing and complicated, or they kind of created this situation where the whole thing was based upon just one brick. I mean, if you pull one brick out of the wall, the whole system of faith collapses. How many of you have heard stories, or maybe you're related to somebody this has happened to, or maybe it happened to you, of 18-year-olds who grew up in church with a strong faith, committed to Christ their entire life, and one freshman biology class tumbled the whole system of faith? Why? Whoever told them that their entire faith was based upon belief in a six-day literal creation? Do you see why this matters? I'm going to get nerdy for just a minute, okay? And so hang with me, and I'm going to read it as written because I want to make sure I say this precisely, all right? The Old Covenant is the Word of God, and it has value for us because it tells us of God's work in the world and of how His covenant with Israel prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. 
but it is not our covenant. We have a new covenant established on better promises, and it has rendered the old one obsolete. The Bible is equally inspired, but the Bible is not equally applicable. There is a difference, a big difference, between what we're told to do in Leviticus and what we're told to do in Ephesians. And that's the crux of the whole controversy. (laughs) You may be a little disappointed to find out that the whole controversy is a theological controversy, but that's the crux of the matter. Andy Stanley, in his books Irresistible, that I'm basing this series on, he asserts that the Old Testament is not the basis of our faith. And yeah, he probably goes a little far in making his point. He says some things in a way that I probably wouldn't say them, and he doesn't make a real clear distinction between the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. There is a difference between those. The Old Covenant is a series of laws established between God and the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is the collections of writings that tell us the story of that history. So the Old Testament still has value for us today. It is still the inspired Word of God. It is still useful for understanding the nature and the will of God. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. But its laws are not binding on us because its covenant is not our covenant. The old covenant is no longer binding on Christians today. Now, that's not a new controversy. That's a very old controversy. During quarantine, I've been reading books that I've been scared to read for 20 plus years. In grad school, I got assigned this book. And I bought this at Harding School of Theology. And It's sat on my shelf for 20 plus years. I never read it in grad school. When am I ever going to have time to read a book like this? It's like 1,300 pages. But in quarantine, I thought, okay, here's your chance. I finally got the time. So I started reading it. It's the memoirs of Alexander Campbell. It was written in the late 1800s by Robert Richardson. Now, if you grew up in the Churches of Christ or the Christian church, you probably have heard of Alexander Campbell before. He was the primary influence on the American Restoration Movement. And the American Restoration Movement birthed the Churches of Christ and the independent Christian churches, and the disciples of Christ. Murray Hills is influenced by the American Restoration Movement. Well, Monday morning, I'm reading this book, and I get to chapter 11, and it just happens to be the chapter that tells the story of uh, Campbell's famous Sermon on the Law. This was a law given in 1816 to the Redstone Baptist Association in which Campbell tried to talk about the Christian's relation to the Old Testament. And guess what? Campbell said the Old Testament is not the basis of our faith today, that the Old Covenant is no longer binding on New Testament Christians. And guess what happened? He got kicked out of the Redstone Baptist Association. People thought uh, that was so controversial that Campbell would say something like this. He upset the Baptist, and he upset the Calvinist. And guess what Andy is upset? In 2019, the Baptist and the Calvinist. But that's not the point. It doesn't matter what the Baptists say. It doesn't matter what the Calvinists say. It doesn't matter what the Churches of Christ say. It doesn't matter what Andy Stanley says. It doesn't matter what Alexander Campbell says. It doesn't matter what Russ Adcock says. It matters what God says through His inspired Word. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, I'm not scared of controversy, because controversy forces us to go to God's Word and ask the question, is this true? Is what we're hearing true? Is is it true that while the Old Covenant is equally inspired, it is not equally applicable? I believe it is true. And I believe it's true 
because several voices in the New Testament tell me it is. First, Jesus tells me that. Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you probably want to follow along with me here for this next few uh, sections because we're going to read through several verses together. But Matthew chapter 5, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 17, Jesus said this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now Jesus was giving a disclaimer at the beginning of the sermon because he's going to go through a series of, you have heard it said, referencing the old law, but I tell you. And he's going to reinterpret some of the distortions of the old law that the Pharisees had, had done. But what does he mean by the word fulfill in verse 17? The Greek definition means to bring to a designated end. Jesus did not come to abolish the old law in the sense of destroy it or undermine it. He came to bring it to a designated end. Jesus came to finish it. And when would this happen? Well, that's verse 18. And there's some you know, differences of thought on verse 18 because Jesus says it will not happen until the end of the age. But then he clarifies that at the end of verse 18 and saying until it will happen when everything is accomplished. Everything is was accomplished through Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through that, Jesus finished the old covenant. He rendered it obsolete. Not obsolete in the sense that it was bad, but obsolete in the sense that something new and better had now come along. We'll then skip over a few books and a few chapters to Acts chapter 10. And Peter, the early leader in the Jerusalem church, said it but only after a little bit of convincing. In Acts chapter 10, or verse 9, it tells the story of Peter going up on his roof, and he was going to pray, but he became hungry. So verse 10, he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contains all sorts of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, why, why would Peter be outraged at the command to get up and kill and eat? Because Peter is a follower of the law of Moses. Yes, he's a disciple of Jesus, but he's still very committed to the old covenant and the law of Moses. And the law of Moses says that there are certain animals that are clean and unclean, and you were forbidden from eating certain animals. And so Peter says, I won't do it. In verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time and said, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up into heaven. Well, while Peter's wondering what in the world is going on, some Gentiles show up at the front door, and they ask him to come to the house of a prominent Gentile who wants to talk to him about the good news of Jesus. So Peter goes over, but he explains to them at the very beginning, verse 28, he says... You are well aware that it is against our law, talking about the Old Covenant, for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And they explained why they sent for him. And then Peter later explains to them, drop down to verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation 
the one who fears Him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter began to understand that something new and better had come along. That this covenant that was originally just with God and the nation of Israel has now been fulfilled and replaced with a new covenant that is with God and the entire human race, every nation, every people. He later says the same thing in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, because guess what? Peter's belief that God's word was for everybody created some controversy. There were Jewish Christians who were opposed to him. They thought that, no, Peter, you should have to obey Jesus plus the law of Moses. And this whole thing came to a head in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And Peter stood up in that council and said, begin chapter 15, verse 7, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed them that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to him, just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, listen to verse 10. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that we either, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's talking about that mixing and matching. Why do you mix and match? Why are you asking them to obey a law that we ourselves haven't been able to fully obey? It didn't bring us reconciliation with God. The only thing that brought us reconciliation with God was Jesus Christ. And Peter says, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter and James and the entire Jerusalem council unequivocally said, Gentiles do not have to obey the law of Moses in order to become Christians. Something new and better had come along. And that unleashed the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of our New Testament, and he was the primary preacher to the Gentiles. You and I are Christians today primarily through the work, the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. And Paul was a Jew among Jews. He was very committed to the old law. He was very committed to the old covenant. I mean, he was persecuting Christians because they were not obeying the old covenant. But when Paul met the resurrected Jesus, it changed his entire perspective. And Paul writes about it extensively in his letters. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. From his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, My brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. There's that resurrection coming up again. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for our death. But listen to 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And He condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the, the letter where Paul gets the most vocal about this is in the one he wrote to the church of Galatia. And it's one of my favorite letters. It's a book that transformed the way I see the Christian faith and the way I see Jesus. Because what Paul was talking about in Galatia was he was refuting these Judaizers who were telling the Galatians, it's Jesus plus fill in the blank. And the blank for them was circumcision or the law of Moses. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. He, he completely goes after this blended approach to trying to mix and match principles from the Old Covenant with principles of the New Covenant. At the beginning of the letter, he says, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Chapter 3, he expands his view just a little bit here, and he says, verse 23, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. The law had a purpose. It served a purpose. It had a specific purpose in mind. But Jesus fulfilled that purpose. But we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all who are baptized in Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then he ends the letter this way. And I know I'm reading a lot of verses to you, but listen, the case for this is strong. He ends the letter here, uh, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, Mark my words. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he's obligated to obey the whole law. And you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul gets to the crux of the matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The old covenant had a purpose. We're thankful for the old covenant and what it teaches us about God. We're thankful for the old covenant. We commit to study it and to understand it because it tells us the unfolding story of redemption that began with Abraham and continued through Moses and ultimately came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But as followers of Jesus, we are people of the new covenant because Jesus did what the old covenant was not able to do. Jesus did what priests and animal sacrifices and temples were not able to do. He redeemed us to God forevermore, completely and wholly. Love did what the law could not do. That's the crux of the matter. That's what our faith is all about. And that's where we're going to go next in this series. We're going to talk about the new ethic that became characterized, this new commandment that Jesus brought to his disciples that should continue to characterize his disciples and his church today. So I hope you'll join us for part four 
of Irresistible. We'll be right back here on Facebook and YouTube at 9.30 a.m. next Sunday. I hope you'll be a part of that. But I would encourage you not to get off too quick. Don't sign off yet because we're not done. Because we didn't want to just end by talking about this great love of God and this great love of Jesus and then walk away from the computer. We want to sing about this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So let's sing this together as we close our service.